Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, November 11th, we're studying 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-13. through 13. As Timothy entrusts the Word of God to faithful men, he must be undistracted, he must be hardworking, constantly strengthened by the unbound Word of Jesus Christ. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Linnell. Pastor Linnell serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks for having me. It's always a, always a privilege and a blessing to be with you guys. So as we get started this morning, Pastor Linnell, let's talk context. We've come through 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're starting chapter 2 today. What do we need to know about the preceding context, the epistle as a whole, that will help us read these verses today? One of the things to keep in mind is that Second Timothy is really the last time in Holy Scripture that we we meet the Apostle Paul and uh, and faithful Timothy. Right? Timothy is uh, going to be briefly mentioned again in Hebrews thirteen twenty three. But but anyway, after journeying with with Paul and with Timothy through Acts and through Paul's epistles, through their imprisonments and their persecutions and their joys and struggles, uh, and and desperate pleas to fellow Christians as as those congregations are struggling, this is really it. This is it. Paul is in prison. He's awaiting execution. And, uh, and he, he begs Timothy to hurry to his side. We, we have every reason to believe that Timothy did just that and witnessed Paul's execution and martyrdom. But when Paul is writing this, he, he's not sure if Timothy's going to make it, if he's ever going to see him again. And so there's a big difference. There's a, there's a big difference between first and second Timothy because the first letter is full of directions and instructions for Timothy as he helps the churches in Asia Minor. But, but this second letter, it really doesn't contain that. Instead, this is, this is Paul's last message to his partner in the ministry, to his friend, and really to be quite frank, to a man that he thinks of as a son. And uh, some commentators have kind of described this letter as, as Paul handing down his legacy to Timothy. And I, I object to that characterization a little bit, not because it's wrong exactly, but because I think it, it, it uh, leaves the door open for us to read these words of Paul as him sort of desperately trying to preserve his life's work and the ministry as if it was kind of a family business, you know? And so we, we end up reading the letter again as instructions and admonitions that are focused on, on, on the, the ministry and, and that. But, but Paul knows that the word of God will endure. And, and he knows that uh, in order to, he, he knows that the word of God is going to be there and the gospel is going to continue on. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't worry that it's going to fall apart if Timothy isn't the one or doesn't do it right. But, but in order to properly hear the affect of this correspondence, what you need to hear is the, the desperate, plea that Paul has in handing over his legacy, which is the gospel, which is the faith of Christ, not for the sake of the word of the ministry, but for the sake of his loved ones, for what that ministry, that gospel is going to do for them 
and how much they need it, not how much the gospel needs them. How the for the sake of his family in Christ and for Timothy, his beloved child, as he says multiple times, is his beloved son. And so this letter is really the last words of a father who is literally sacrificing his life for his son. And these these are the words that he wants his son to remember. And I think that's that's what we need uh, when we're going in, if we're going to hear it the right way. Paul calls Timothy my child yet again in this text. The last words of a father sacrificing his life for his son. With that in mind, we read from 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. That was First Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. I'll pause there, Pastor Linnell. So the first couple verses, verses 1 and 2, go together as, as one sentence. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The first part of that sentence, I mean, fits very well with what you were saying previously about this being a letter from a father to his son. The father knows he's about to die. He says, here's your strength. It's in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then he continues the base for that then. What do you do with that? Also entrust that to faithful men who will also teach. Take us into these first two verses. So when he says, um, be strengthened, it depends on uh, your translation. Uh, occasionally a Bible will, or a translation will put that in as be strong or something like that. That's not right. That verb is a passive verb, right? So it is be strengthened or be made strong. And in these passives, it's their, their divine passives, right? If you're going to be made strong, who's going to make you strong? And the assumption is never that you're going to make yourself strong, right? That's never, that's never the thing that we assume. But God is going to do that. By what? By what are you going to be made strong? By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So it is this, this desperate plea, almost a prayer, really, that he would be made strong by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the thing is, is that Paul, um, when you read this, it is this, this incredibly personal and emotional letter between Paul and Timothy as a father and a son. But Paul, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, is never so selfish that he only thinks of himself and his relationships and his feelings and his sufferings as if they're the only thing that matter. He sees them within a greater context, and he wants Timothy to be able to see that as well. He's acknowledging because, you know, our feelings and our emotions and our personal relationships and sufferings, those are important, but they're not in a vacuum. And this is one of those, I think, really important and beautiful things that we see from Paul under the inspiration and power of the Holy Spirit to acknowledge the personal relationships, the, the personal sufferings, to have that personal and desperate pl- prayer 
but then also to keep in mind the the context of the rest of of your vocation, uh, your calling, and in the church, and what we're here in this world for, because you know again by itself, you know, well Paul's going to go up and. He's going to be in heaven. Timothy will join him eventually. There's really no cause for suffering or anything, you know, for worry or any of that. I mean, you know, it'll be fine in the end. Everybody's going to heaven, right? But, but you know that Timothy is going to be down here and he's going to live through these things. And what is he going to do in the meantime? And Paul then, then turns that focus to that. So be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And, and then what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will also teach it to others. Don't forget. Don't forget. And, and don't keep this to yourself. Don't run off and go hide in a cave. You know, don't, don't go and sob and, and be mopey and live in the basement somewhere. But continue on with the work. Because as important as you are to me, we were always in this together for something that was bigger than us. You know, um, so you say things like, you know, be strengthened. What would have taken that strength away? You know, the the magnitude of the task that's sitting in front of Timothy, because he is in a sense handing off the ministry, at least in Asia Minor, right? That's incredibly intimidating. The rejection and the treatment of Paul, his father, not only in Rome, but also in, in those churches and in the persecutions that they had faced. And that rejection can create a bitterness and a cynicism and sometimes it just takes that that dramatic catalyst for somebody to either fall into a depression or to 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 be um, I don't want to say taken out of the faith, but to get a real bad attitude, right? To give up on people, to give up on the ministry. I mean, you know, Pastor, haven't you ever had a, an experience where you know you were just really passionate for something, uh, maybe and especially in the ministry, and it just turned out so poorly? that you had a hard time being motivated again. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of us have those experiences and it's not just in the ministry. We have that experience with our family or with our friends, sometimes with evangelizing, you know, we have those experience in all of those places. And, and so again, Paul is encouraging Timothy in this regard because he knows that this is going to be aside from uh, what, what we, we might guess is we don't know what happens to timothy you know but we we might reasonably assume that he could have been he could have been martyred just as easily as he could have ended up you know dying of an old age but aside from perhaps timothy's own martyrdom if that was the case this is going to be one of one of the most pivotal events in his life and paul wants to make sure that god's word is there to guide him in the right way so that this incredibly dramatic event doesn't take him down the wrong path or kick him off the straight and narrow, but so that he remembers to keep his eye on the prize and to be comforted and to be strengthened by the sure and certain hope that is in Christ Jesus. For certainly Paul, even in these moments, is relying on that same gospel that he has handed down to Timothy from the beginning. And that's what you saw in the beginning of chapter one, uh, when he says, you know, I, I thank God with whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. I remember you constantly in my prayers. As I remember your tears, I long to see you. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that would first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. And so he's, he's reminding him of all of these things. This is a faith that's bigger than you. It's bigger than us. 
And it shouldn't end with you. You need to hand it on and you need to continue. In order to encourage Timothy to do that, Paul then brings up three images in this section. He, he talks of Timothy as a soldier. He talks of Timothy as an athlete and then as a, a farmer. Let's take us into each of those images, Peshel, and why, what's Paul communicating to Timothy when he talks about him as a soldier? Right. These are actually really great. Um, and, uh, you know, and first I just want to kind of say what, uh, what fatherly examples sort of to bring up, right. You know, in the midst of this incredibly emotional letter and you could, you can even imagine Timothy having to, you know, read it multiple times sort of, you know, through his emotional state so that he can really get all that Paul is saying, you know, but in the midst of this incredibly emotional letter, Paul, Paul kind of gives these tough guy examples, right. And it's such an honest and, and very human way to talk. And you can almost see Paul, you know, start to struggle, not not to be overwhelmed as he writes this letter, because he knows that the point, again, isn't simply to let Timothy know how he feels, but to direct him to the gospel so that Timothy won't lose his way. And so, you know, is the way that sometimes tough guys do, they'll talk and then they start to get emotional and then they, they kind of, <clears throat> and then they bring up, you know, tough guy examples, you know, the, the soldier and the, and the athlete and, you know, how about them bears and, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. And I, I, I think that that's, it's not the only thing that Paul is doing here because certainly Paul has used these examples before, right. You know, that putting on the armor of Christ and being a soldier, right. The athlete and running the race and that sort of thing, you know, so these are, of course, Paul is, bringing up teachings that he has used in previous letters, teachings that Timothy would be familiar with. He's bringing those things back, but he's he's also doing it at a very opportune time to sort of change the tone a little bit because, you know, you don't want it to get too emotional and Paul wants to focus on what's important. And so again, um, in these examples, he uses the soldier and the athlete. Let's take a look at those two first. Because in these two examples, the soldier and the athlete, um, those those two uh, activities or vocations focus on competition generally. You have to uh, contend with uh, an opponent, and your goal is to overcome. But in these examples, Paul is not focused on the competition side of this analogy. The soldier and the athlete generally are trying to win, but in these examples, it would be wrong to emphasize the competition because Paul is speaking of the endurance part. He's speaking of the endurance when it comes to being a soldier. And he's speaking of the endurance when it comes to being an athlete. And the endurance and the focus. So when he says here, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. His focus in here. Nowhere does he really talk about, you know, going out, winning the victory and overcoming the enemy. He says, now, remember, remember, we were called to be soldiers for Christ. And as soldiers, soldiers are concerned with something bigger than just them. So don't forget the mission. Don't forget the mission, boy. You know, I'm going to die. And we always knew that that was going to happen. We always knew that that was coming someday. Don't tell me that that never crossed your mind when they were throwing stones at us and trying to throw us off cliffs, when they were putting us in prison and all sorts of other things. Don't tell me that you don't remember the conversations that we had. And I told you that this day would come. And now, 
Now you're the one that has to carry on the mission. And it's more important than you and me. It's more important than, than all of those, those, you know, your anxiety or the, the way that you feel rejected. Keep, keep your eye on the goal. And don't get entangled up in the civilian pursuits. Don't get caught up in all sorts of drama that's going on, you know, and the accusations that they're going to throw out about, you know, you only care about money or you only care about influence. You know, it doesn't matter what people are posting on Facebook or what anybody's, whatever's going on with Twitter or any sorts of things like that. All of that drama that people, you know, don't worry about those things. Your aim is to please the one who enlisted you. And of course, that's Jesus, right? Your aim is to please God. So don't get caught up in all of that other nonsense because it is going to come your way and it's going to distract you from the goal. You know, an athlete, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And again, here, he could have been focused on, you know, running, uh, running the race or competing against somebody else. Or, you know, you got to run harder and faster than the enemies of Jesus and the word. And you got to win something like that. You got to run faster than the devil and how. But he doesn't talk about any like that, anything like that. He's talking about uh, the endurance of an athlete and competing according to the rules. And so he says, you know, don't don't even worry about what anybody else is doing. You run your race, you run your pace. Don't don't run out after the rabbit. If you, I don't know if do you ever do track. I am I am not a I'm not a runner, Pastor. You're not no, a runner. No, not unless I'm doing other things. So right. Well, I'm not really a runner either. I don't I don't have to run fast. I just have to run faster than one guy. That's right. right? So, <laughs> um, but no. So you, a lot of times they'll have somebody that you know runs out way ahead of the pack, and then you know you, there's sort of a temptation to try to keep up with them as opposed to set your pace, especially if it's a if it's a long sort of. Yeah a long sort of match or a long sort of thing. And if you're wrestling or you're boxing or you're doing whatever, you know, you got to make sure that you're setting a pace because the punches that you throw in the first round need to be just as hard as the punches you throw in the last round. And if you can't do that, then you're not setting a good pace. You got to learn how to breathe. You got to do these things. And he's saying, look, you know, uh, as an athlete, you need to, you need to compete according to the rules. You need to pay attention to what the actual race is. Don't get distracted with elbows or something that people are throwing. And you need to focus on what the actual goal is, because that's the only way that you're going to be crowned. You're not going to get crowned, you know, because you got into a fist fight and beat up three people on, you know, the second lap of a four lap race because they said something you didn't like. Don't be an idiot. You know, don't get distracted by all of these other things. Focus on what's important. And it's not that your feelings, it's not that the things, you know, the struggles in your life, the pain that you have, it's not that those things aren't important. Those things are important. Just keep them in perspective and don't let them take you off the path or take you out of the race or forget what competition exactly it is that you're in. And so he's he's bringing those things up in those two examples. Hmm. Now, so, in the third example, oh, go ahead. Well, I, that's what I was just going to, I was going to kind of summarize there, the ideas of, of endurance, keeping your eyes focused on the goal, not getting caught up in the the drama that's going on, not losing sight of, of what that goal is, of who it is that you're actually trying to please, the one who enlisted you. Those are the, the themes there for these first two. Now, the, the third is a, a farmer. Are there, is there overlap? Is Paul doing something a little different with that image? What, what's the point of bringing that one up as well? Right. So in this case, we are still tempted to see it as a, a competition, 
right? Because the way that he begins is he says, it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first chair. And so I've heard people say, oh, well, you see the hard work. You got to be a hardworking farmer. Don't be like a lazy farmer, right? Well, that's not what he's talking about either. You know, in this example of the farmer, the point is not to contrast the hardworking and lazy farmer with that word toil or that word hardworking. The point is also not uh, to give permission to Timothy in order to take a salary for his work or any to, or really either to focus on any sort of worldly blessings or something like that. There's been some kind of accusation by some commentators that Timothy had some sort of a, you know, a, a greedy streak in him and, and Paul was admonishing him to not care about money or something. And I, I, I don't buy that at all. I, I, just, I don't I don't think it fits in here at all. And I, I don't really think that's the point of what Paul is trying to say in these things. I think that's a product of people who are who are uh, reading encouragement and looking for law. And in here he says, and this this, I think, again, and most especially is is not law. He says it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And so what he's what he's implying is that Timothy is the hardworking farmer, or at the very least, he has every confidence that he will be. And he says it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share. And so the point is to remind Timothy that he needs to first receive daily the word of encouragement and the gospel that he intends to sow. And so, again, when you started off that chapter, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And as you get down here to verse 6, he says, don't forget that even as the guy who's going out and telling everybody about the gospel, you need to hear it yourself. And you probably need to hear it first, and you probably need to hear it most of all. It's that gospel that you intend to sow that you need to hear. And the fruits of the Spirit which you desire others should bear should first be the bounty that you look to from the Holy Spirit in yourself. You, you need, and so I don't, you know, you could use a modern term and practice, you know, self-care or something like that. And I suppose that's not a bad way to say it. I just feel a little weird because it's sort of modern way to say it. But really what he's saying again is that, you know, as a pastor, for example, well, we're, we're preaching every Sunday, right? I got the best attendance at everybody in church. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that because I'm prepping for Sunday worship that I've done any sort of personal devotion, you know? So don't neglect your personal time in God's word. Uh, don't, and this this happens with with parents and kids too, right? Or with families. If if you are constantly making sure that your family is doing devotions and you're doing those things, that is a good and godly thing, right? Thanks be to God. Praise be to God that you're doing that. But if you're constantly prepping to make sure that everybody else has devotion time, when do you have time? When do you have time to be encouraged? When do you have time in prayer and in God's word as opposed to making sure that everybody else? And so this is what Paul is saying. It fits completely, uh, really perfectly in with what he says. He says, you be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And don't ever forget that the hardworking farmer ought to have the first share of the crops. And so the hardest working missionary, the hardest working evangelist should maybe first hear the gospel himself. And don't ever, don't ever think that you don't need it. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And you could say understanding, and you could, you could probably say wisdom in that, you know. But you know, think over this and don't forget it. And you know, and what he says here isn't, you know, my words or your efforts. 
But he says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. And that should give us an opportunity to look back and to hear what Paul has just said and understand that that's what he means. When you think over what he just said, how does what he just said give you the idea or or tell you that the Lord will be giving you those things that you need and direct you back to the Lord and direct you back to the gospel? And when you're going out to do the work, direct you uh, to to remember that it's the Lord who does these things, and there's something bigger that we're a part of. And that that's a fantastic way of of reading that. And I think you're right on that. It does then tie us back to that very first verse of being strengthened. Where does that strength come from? It doesn't come from inside Timothy. It comes from the Word of God. That which he is preaching is for him too. He needs to hear it just as as much as those. He serves, and what a what a fantastic reminder for for pastors today, as you said, for parents that as as they are given those roles of teaching those under their care, that they too need to be taught. They too need to rest and feed upon this word of God. That they're giving, they need it just as much. We're going to go ahead and take our break here a little bit early. You're listening to Sharper Iron. Here on KFUO, we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, November 11th. We're studying 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. We've got Pastor Sean Linnell with us. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, prior to the break, we looked at verses 1 through 7 of our text. I'll go ahead and read verses 8 through 13 for the second half of the show. Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That's the rest of the text, 2 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 13. Pastor Linnell, Paul starts now saying to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. What are these two identifications of Jesus given here? Why does Paul emphasize those here? He tells us, again, to, to remember Jesus risen from the dead. And so there's... Uh, sometimes sort of an objection here because he's like, well, you know, for the guy who says that he 
he he knows nothing but Christ and him crucified. He didn't say anything about Jesus on the cross, right? He just jumped straight to the resurrection. And I think that the response to that is, is pretty simple, which is it's kind of hard to rise from the dead if you didn't die, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the the death of Christ is, um, it's it's a part of that. Like, Paul's not discounting it. But I think that a lot of times, uh, certainly, you, you know, you don't separate out the work of Christ or his atonement, but sometimes we talk about it in different ways. So, for example, you know, when we're uh, in the seminary, when we're learning about things, we learn about, uh, you might call them, uh, theories or modes or whatever of atonement. And so you have one that's called this vicarious satisfaction, right? Vicarious atonement. What that means is that you've incurred a penalty, a debt for your sin, and that Jesus goes there in your place and dies on the cross to take the punishment for you. But there's another way that they talk about it. It's called this Christus Victor model, right? Or whatever, however you want to say that. Systematicians always get us in trouble, you know. But they say, well, we're oppressed by sin. We're slaves to sin. Slaves in bondage and in the power of the devil and in this broken world. And we need Christ to come and set us free. To give sight to the blind and to, you know, to, to preach freedom and uh, to the captives. And, right? and so you know, sometimes you talk about it that way. And when you're... When you're talking about the gospel, when you're talking about the law, none of these things are by themselves. They're all they're all there together, and you don't ever separate them. Again, that's one of the one of the downfalls of the systematicians is that they sort of separate everything out, and it looks sometimes like these things sit by themselves, and they don't. But a lot of times, emphasizing one over the other is much more important, or at least more productive. If you have somebody uh, who, or you yourself, have done something for which uh, you are ashamed, you have sinned, and you know that what you did was wrong, and you are worried about God's wrath and punishment because of your sin, it's maybe not going to be as comforting to hear how Jesus freed us from uh, the the bondage that we're in. I'm not saying that it's not comforting at all. I'm just saying that maybe it would be more comforting and more directly applicable to the way that the law of God is afflicting you to talk about how Jesus took God's wrath upon himself and now there is no condemnation under the law for those who are in Christ Jesus. The wrath of God is satisfied and you can see where it was already poured out and so there is now none left for you. And in the same way, if somebody is struggling because they have cancer and they feel like maybe, you know, they're, they are oppressed and broken and their faith is struggling and everything else, and they're worried about death and they feel death encroaching upon them, you know, this too is uh, what happens to someone's faith when confronted with the law. But, you know, when somebody is is talking about it that way, coming up and saying, you know, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And you'd be like, yes, I, I know this, and I'm not trying to discount it, but I wasn't talking about my feelings of guilt right now. I was talking about my feelings of helplessness and despair. And so perhaps the gospel that speaks better to me is, is you know, emphasized in Christ's victory over death. 
and how you know uh, now there is is uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? There is now nothing that can convince that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, right? And you list all the things. And so you get down here and you say, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Right? What exactly is this letter being sent for? In what circumstance? Paul's about to be executed. Timothy is about to lose his spiritual father. Paul is going to die. Not only that, but there's very good reason to believe that this is now uh, during the, the beginning of the persecution by Emperor Nero. So, and this kind of goes back into when Timothy is written, but you, without getting into that big conversation, let's just say that this, this letter is being written 65, 66 after, uh, after Nero has set Rome on fire and he's tried lots of ways to get out from underneath of it. So he finally blames the Christians and now, you know, Peter's been martyring some other things. And so there's a lot going on. And so the, the comfort and the encouragement that Paul brings isn't Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins, but hey, you're facing death and persecution and the whole world and darkness is closing around you, but the darkness shall not overcome the light for even when Christ was laid in the grave, he rose from the dead. So don't worry. Don't worry about me dying. Don't worry about you dying. If Christ died and rose again, then certainly we shall rise with him. You know, the offspring of David, reminding him that this isn't new, that this is, he is the fulfillment of the promise from the very beginning. God didn't bring him all the way through history from the time of David, you know, and, and bring him all the way up here just to abandon it now. This is something bigger than you. It's bigger than all of us. God was keeping his promises long before we were here, and he will keep them long after we are with him in heaven. It just is the gospel, uh, and, and this, and then he says, as preached in my gospel. And he's reminding him that this isn't, you've always known this. This is what, this is what I've been talking to you about from the beginning. It's the faith that was handed down from your grandmother and your mother. It's the faith that we preach to people all through the years that we were together. It's the faith and the gospel that we, we risked persecution and stoning and all of these other things and imprisonment for. It's no different now. Hmm. Now, of course, there are a few things in these uh, in these uh, verses where where Paul says uh, things or he phrases things in a way that I think people uh, latch on to and make much ado about nothing. And uh, I'd I'd like to bring those those things up. Paul says, as preached in my gospel. And then later, we're going to get to the one where he says, uh, for the sake of the elect, and we'll we'll get to that when we get down there. But here he says, as preached in my gospel. And then sometimes people make the dig, a big deal about that, and they say, well, his gospel. Is there a different one? Is there, you know, is, are there multiple gospels? Well, first of all, no. You know, but we do this all the time, and I think it's making much ado about nothing. You know, do we say Matthew's gospel? Turn to Matthew's gospel. Turn to the gospel of Matthew. Well, is it? Or is the proper name the gospel of Jesus according to St. Matthew? Well, sure. But who wants to write that or say that every time? You know, you sound obnoxious. And Paul's got limited space. He's writing on parchment here or whatever it is. So sure. He doesn't write out the Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ entrusted and preached to, by me 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. So he just says my gospel, right? But he doesn't mean anything by it, anything, anything special. If he does mean anything by it, all he's doing is he's referencing again those places where in Galatians, you know, he said things like, uh, if anybody comes to you with a gospel other than that, which, you know, we have preached to you, even if he's an angel from heaven, let him be accursed. It's just a little callback to things Paul has said in other letters, if anything else. But I don't think we should make that much of it. You know, and then again, he's he's tying those things together because he's saying it's the gospel that you heard from me. And so he's using that he's using that affection in that regard to remind him, to remind Timothy of all of the times that he had heard him and built up in the gospel. You know, it's one of those things that comes from Proverbs. You raise a child in the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not depart from it. Well, Timothy is Paul's spiritual child, and he's reminding him that he has been raised in the way he should go and in the word of God, and he's encouraging him not to depart from it. Before we get to that one, the sake of the elect, he said another place where people make more than they should. Let's let's consider verse 9, the contrast that Paul sets up. On the one hand, he's bound with chains as a criminal, but on the other hand, the word of God is not bound. Take us into that contrast that he draws there. Yeah, and it's a really important contrast too. Right. Oh, and then this is also so uh, risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached by my gospel for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. And I think um, mm. just in this, as he connects it to the previous to the previous sentence, um, he's he's drawing a parallel between the way that Christ was treated and the way that his servants are treated. And so, you know, in our creed or in those things, right, who, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, you know, was crucified, died. And so we we know these things. And you see that the the suffering that Christ endures is mirrored in the suffering and the persecution of his followers. And and this is to be expected. And you find this in multiple places in the Bible. You see this in the Gospels. There's in in Matthew's Gospel, they have a whole big section that lets you know that, hey, uh, the people who are teaching you this gospel are probably going to have hard lives and be persecuted, and that doesn't mean that God is angry with them. When the people who bring you the gospel, these disciples and these apostles, when you yourselves find yourselves persecuted for the sake of the gospel, that is not God telling you you're wrong and punishing you because you're going in the wrong direction. They say, no, exactly the opposite that if you are following Christ, the world is going to hate you because they hated him. And so again, he says, he draws this parallel. And then like you said, then there's also this wonderful contrast, but the word of God is not bound. And it kind of creates this little chiasm. Uh, If you don't know what a, a chiasm is, it's just sort of a thing where you've got like, like if you were to do a poem and you had A, B, B, A, right? It kind of goes this, you know, in that direction. It does this as well, right? So risen from the dead, the offspring of, of, of David, for which I am suffering, but the word of God is not bound. It's not bound. It's not bound in death. It's not bound in chains. It's not bound in prison, but it's risen from the dead, right? Jesus Christ, the word in flesh incarnate is not bound. And just because Paul is in prison doesn't mean that the word is bound either. It doesn't mean that he's failed or that the gospel's failed or that you should give up on the mission, that you should give up on, on uh, or that Timothy should give up on the work that he has been entrusted with in Asia Minor. 
And this is going to become even more important as not only Paul is put in prison, but when he starts seeing uh, his own followers and is even at risk of that himself. One of the things that uh, happens a little bit later, at least uh, we understand from the uh, from the tradition, is that uh, John is going to be fleeing Jerusalem and making his headquarters up in Ephesus for a while, and that would be there up in Timothy's region. And so as time goes on, these persecutions and these hardships are going to become even even more pronounced. And this is something that, that Paul would have him remember, is that even when those things are bad, the word of God is not bound. And then from that, Paul says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He said, for the sake of the elect is something people make a big deal over that they probably shouldn't. So what what's that? And then what should we make of this verse? Right. Well, and then and that's the thing, you know, he said, I therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, and everybody hears Oh, the elect, and then we're talking about double predestination because stupid Calvinists have to bring this out and make a big deal about it all the time, right? So for those of you who don't know, uh, Lutherans believe in uh, uh, predestination. We do believe that the reason you have faith is because God gave it to you, right? The Holy Spirit worked in your heart by the power of the word there, or the word in the, by the power of the Holy Spirit to create faith in you. You are dead in your trespasses, there is no decision that you make to bring yourself to faith or to cooperate with God in this regard. The word of God works in your heart to create faith where there was nothing but hostility and death. It is 100% God's work. Now, we would also say that uh, if you are not saved, that it's not because God preordained you to be uh, to be the reprobate, to to be sent off to hell. That if you are not made alive, it's because you rejected that gospel. You told the Holy Spirit to take a hike. You didn't want it, and we wouldn't subscribe to a once saved, always saved, or anything sort of like that position. Now we're accused of holding positions then that don't logically match up with one another. And to that, we say, so what? We don't really care. What we care is what God's word says. And God says that he desires not the death of a sinner, but that all, that all would come to repentance and that they would find eternal life. But we, we, also, we also hear and we see in the scriptures that there are people who turn away. And so we simply say that both things are true. And if I can't explain that, that's my problem. Now, the Calvinists on the other side, they're going to say that God, before the creation of the world, made a decision in his divine providence that he was going to create an entire class of people called the elect, and they were going to be the vessels to receive his grace and mercy. And that he also created or or, uh, chose before the creation of the world an entire class of people called the reprobate. And they would be the ones who would be the vessels for his wrath uh, upon and out upon which his justice and whatever would be would be outpoured. And so you have these two classes of people and you have no idea which one you're in. Absolutely none. So you can be baptized, you can go to church your whole life, and maybe 
you're part of the elect, or maybe you're part of the reprobate, and you don't know. And the only indication that you have on which one you are is to take a look at your life and see if you're doing the things that a Christian is supposed to do, and then you're probably one of the elect, and if you aren't doing those things, then you're probably one of the reprobate, which sounds a whole lot like works righteousness, although they're going to say, well, no, it's not because of that. It's just where you look. Well, who cares? You're still looking at your works, and it's a terrible thing. It's also unbiblical. So in this, they would say that if somebody looks like they had the faith, and then later they fall away from it, well, they never really had the faith. They never really believed at all. They were just faking it or something dumb like that. And so they read passages like this and they say, oh, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Oh, see, that proves it because there's an English word in here that says elect. And then you go, I don't think that word means what you think it means. And so uh, when we look at this, I, I think that there's there's just a, a completely different emphasis that Paul has. Nowhere in chapter 2 has Paul made an argument for the elect and the reprobate or God's divine providence and choosing or something or anything like that? Nothing like that. What he has said here is, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And what Paul says here and what he's reminding Timothy of is he says, you know, look, I know that I'm here in prison and I'm going to die. And I wish that I could come and be with you again. I, I beg you to come and try to be here with me as dangerous as it is. My son, I pray, I pray that we get to see each other again. But I don't want you to forget why I'm here. I'm not here because you know, I screwed up and I'm a criminal. I'm not here because God's word failed. I'm not here because it's unfair. I'm not even really here, not really against my will. I'm here because I'm a servant to the Lord. And because whether by my life or by my death, I will serve him. And if this is where I got to be so that other people can know the gospel, then I gladly go there. And I pray that you, I pray that you would do the same. Because there's something more important than me. There's something more important than me getting to see you again in this earthly life. For certainly Christ is risen from the dead and I know I'll see you again. But think of all of those people. Think of all of those people who don't and haven't yet heard the gospel, but who will believe. The joy that you had, the, the, the confidence and the hope that we have even right now. Think of them. Don't, don't let this despair and this pain overtake you because we endure all of these i am currently right now enduring these things suffering in a christ-like way as our lord did so so that others might hear the gospel and that's really all he means by that he doesn't mean to make a big word out of the elect all he means is to draw attention draw timothy's attention to the fact that there is something bigger than them and that the love that Paul has for him as his son and that Timothy has for him as his father, that, that Timothy, Timothy is also going to go out and Timothy is going to, to have his own uh, spiritual sons and daughters. And he's going to build those relationships and share that gospel with them. And the family of God is going to increase. So don't be so, so small minded. 
And don't be so selfish, boy, because there are things that are more important than the life of an old man. That's all he means. With that, then, Paul concludes this part of the text, giving one of the trustworthy sayings. We've encountered these in in the first epistle Paul wrote to Timothy. And here in verse 11, Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy, or the word is faithful, you could translate it, for... If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We've got about six minutes left to talk about this last section, Pastor Linnell. Well, it's it's really sort of a, a wonderful uh, section, a beautiful way that he's got this, this put out. When he says that this saying or this word is trustworthy, uh, I think he's talking about, again, the passage that follows in these, these two and a half verses and really the, the whole of the gospel that he's entrusting to Timothy. But he sort of encapsulates it here and he says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And so here, uh, this is this, I think, very clearly uh, references the baptismal teachings that Paul has taught throughout his ministry and throughout all of his epistles. For if we have been buried with baptism are buried you know, uh, with Christ in a, a death like his, right, through baptism, will certainly be raised into a life like his, in a resurrection like his. Um, and so this is what he's referencing. And this is, again, all the more, all the more relevant because Paul is facing death. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. You know, so remember, Timothy, all of the teachings that we had on baptism, you didn't think that those were just spiritual sayings, did you? I meant that literally that we would literally be raised from the dead and that this baptism is God's pledge and promise, a sacrament given to seal you with this. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. And it says endure, and we, we see that endure. And a lot of times uh, we we make that sort of a command word. Well, you have to endure so that you can reign with him as if you're going to earn it. No, really the only thing that he's referencing here is he's, He's, you know, what are you going to endure? You're going to endure suffering. So even though those sufferings and those hardships come, even even though you have to go through all of these terrible things, just like on All Saints Day, uh, we had, it says, you are blessed in spite of all of these terrible things because you will also reign with him. So there is something else coming. And then he gives a short admonition. He says, now, if you deny him, he will also deny us. Don't think that you can't fall away from this. But, but if we are faithless, if you stumble, if you fall into sin, even if you fail at times, he still remains faithful. So don't lose heart, boy, because you're going to stumble along the way. But it was never about you. It was always about the gospel and Christ is faithful even when we fail. And he is going to be faithful to you because you have been bound to him. You are his own. He prayed and he said that we may be one even as you and I are one. And he cannot deny you now any more than he could deny himself. Your salvation is secure because Christ has already died and rose again. And so this is sort of a a beautiful way and a beautiful thing that uh, that. Paul, I think, ends that little section there. And of course, the letter goes on. But but I guess just as a as a last thing here, you know, Timothy, Timothy, after reading this letter and Paul's execution, he's going to carry on 
in Asia Minor, and he he passed down these words that we read in Second Timothy that he got from his father Paul, and he passed down those those words as he would be a spiritual father to those people that he would he would look after. And these words come to us the same way as children in faith, to strengthen and to encourage us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And also so that with these words, we may encourage our sons and daughters to carry on after us until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as you read Second Timothy, dear listener, be strengthened yourself by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and resolve to endure everything in faith that you also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus for you. You have been united as one with Christ through water and word, and Christ will never deny you either, for he cannot deny himself, just as Paul reminded and told Timothy. Pastor Sean Linnell is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska, helping us this morning with 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Pastor Linnell, thanks for being our guest today. Pleasure. Christ is risen from the dead. Though suffering may come, though a Christian may be bound, the word of God is not bound. Christ has triumphed. He is risen. He is living. He will come again, and he will raise us from the dead with him. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.